Let me pray for Kale. Lord, we are so thankful for our brother Kale. We thank you, Lord, that his family has allowed him to come and visit us and to share the word with us, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you would use his preparation to bring us joy, that you would encourage us, that you would teach us through his work. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for him. Use him, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning. Each time Matt reaches out to me, I've always been like, what's the passage now? So, but I'm thankful we'll be here. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. So we're going to do Revelation 12 and 13. Uh, I know that Matt usually preaches for about an hour. I will not do that. I'll probably do uh, about an hour and a half, I'm thinking. Uh, it's a joke. Don't worry. Uh, tough crowd so far. All right. Um, so upon uh, getting this passage, I remember thinking, okay, I know some of this text. And my wife and I were in a drive to it uh, about a week and a half ago. And she said, hey, what text preaching? And I said, well, here's the text. Go ahead and read it. And she read it, and my wife Kelly, her, her words were, oh. So it, it's a very odd passage. However, uh, it's full of gospel. It's, it's, it's fantastic. So we're not going to read it right off the bat. We're going to do, we're kind of work our way through as we go, because it is two chapters, so we'll kind of work our way through it. I want to start with a quick little uh, story here. A uh, sermon title today, what people are going to have in their mind, is Sustained by the Slain Lamb. Seems to be the theme in the book of Revelation as well. Uh, in 1775, a few months after the, their victory at Bunker Hill, the British Army went to, they had a camp in Boston, okay? And they enjoyed the theater. They enjoyed to have plays, musicals, and that sort of thing back uh, in England. And they kind of had a home away from home here, and what they did is they created a way to have plays because they were bored. And they wanted to take their mind off the war. So what they did is they turned a, uh, a theater room into a way where they could produce their own plays. They wrote some of their own. They did some Shakespearean plays as well. Um, however, on January 8, 1776, uh, they had their own play. It was portraying a ridiculous-looking figure of George Washington. So he looked like a fool. He looked like a baboon, they would say. He came up with this huge, long sword. He, he just he looked, he looked silly, was the point. It was to make fun of him. And the play was about fighting with the war, right? And the audience is, the, the crowd of the audience is uh, military men who are British who are in civilian clothing, so they don't have their guns, they're just kind of watching. And long, uh, surprisingly to them, they don't know that that night, the Americans are actually, they scheduled uh, a sneak attack during this play. So while there's a play happening of a war, actual soldiers creep in and start shooting with guns. During, during this, this play. And the people think, oh, this is cruel. What great, look at firearm shit. They don't know that's real. They think it's fake. And it takes even a soldier and the actual who runs out in uniform to say, the Americans are here, they're shooting. And people go, oh, they're laughing and clapping. They think it's part of the play. Of course, eventually they realize it's real. They run out absolutely terrified. They trample over the orchestra. They push people out of the way. They're shoving and screaming. Uh, no one actually dies. The Americans do take a couple hostages. No, no, no one's killed. Um, one of the uh, people that are there in attendance, uh, one of the wise generals, uh, she wrote this uh, about why they do so. Like, why would you have a play when the enemy's just close? Like, why would you do that? That just seems like madness to me when they're this close. Uh, one of the wives wrote this letter. She says, quote, in the midst of these horrors, horrors of war, we endeavor as much to forget them. 
So during this time of just strife and war, they're like, okay, we need to just get these things out of our mind. They, they don't exist. Let's pretend they're not here. It would be way easier if they just weren't here. Friends, in, in the book of Revelation, there's seems to be this unveiling of what's really going on in reality. In America, we're very good at hiding behind things. Uh, whether it's saying, well, yeah, they're, they're a Muslim, but that's just their religion. That's, just, that, that's not a thing. Or uh, if, if I work hard enough, I can kind of just rule out the fact that I have friends and family who are unbelievers. And I'll deal with that later. It's not really a big deal. No, they're nice, whatever. We, we seem to, to close things off, kind of hope that they don't exist, when in reality there really is a war going on behind the curtain that we don't really know about. The book of Revelation is really good because it shows you everything's not really okay in the world, at least to what we think. Does that make sense? There's this understanding that if we can kind of just hide behind reality and money and wealth and job and marriage, we won't see what's going on. In these chapters, the apostle really shows what's going on every day uh, and what we, we may be unaware of. So my hope today is that you will see two things primarily. Uh, one, not only is Satan real, and that he has a reoccurring desire and attempt to kill you, kill the church, kill the gospel, squash out any prog pro progress of Christianity. Hope you see that, but also hope that you will see that there is a heart solidifying truth that Jesus really is the King of the nations. And he rules the world with an iron scepter. And Satan is not this free creature that Jesus is trying to catch up with. He's a leashed lizard. He's not this monstrous beast of the Lord Jesus. That's my hope. So the big idea today is that in the midst of suffering, you will see that the Lamb will sustain you. He really will. He will sustain you. Everyone will worship either the beast or the Lamb. With that being said, let's jump to the text. We got a lot, a lot to go. Let's jump in. I uh, got three points for you. The first point is the woman and the dragon. Uh, let's jump in. Chapter twelve, verses one through six. We're going to read real quickly here. And a great sign appeared in heaven: a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in the heavens: behold. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled to the wilderness where she is a place prepared for God, by God, in which she's been nourished for 1,260 days. So John tells Rock about there's this great sign. Now Matt's pointing out in, in the past few sermons that's something really important. What's really common is to divorce chapters like this from the first three chapters. First three chapters are the letters to the church, right? What's common to do is to say, well, that's for them. This is a whole other book. That's not how John wrote. Right? John wrote in one breath, so to speak. Right? He wrote continuously. So this has to do a lot with that church. They, they're going to see what's going on. Does that make sense? So don't divorce these dra this dragon and this pregnant woman from the reality of the church understands. So I hope you understand. And since he says it's a great sign, means it's a symbol, right? So it's, it really means more than what, what it really looks like. It's a picture. 
book of Revelation is less like a, a puzzle book where you're trying to fit pieces together, more like a, a kid's picture book. You kind of see, okay, this represents this. This means this. Instead of trying to fit every little piece together, it's more of a broad picture, okay? So the woman, let's look at it real quickly here. She's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. She wears a crown of 12 stars. Uh, she's preggers, crying out in agony and pain. She does give birth to a, a boy, a male child, who's to rule the nations. The first question is, who is this woman? Who is she? I believe, I think, I think you can get this clearly. I believe the woman is a picture of the messianic community, those who will be the people of God, the elect ones, the ones who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But let me show you how, how I get there. Uh, the Old Testament uses a lot of language of the church being the woman, right? The Old Testament Israel being the woman. The Lord speaks in Hosea of her being this adulterous woman, right? In Isaiah, the same language is kind of used. The 12 stars, more than likely, represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Joseph has a dream in Genesis where he sees, if you remember Joseph's story of his brothers, he's betrayed. And in his dream, he sees this vision of his brother bowing down to him, right? And they are portrayed as stars. So he would be the 12th. So probably 12 tribes of Israel is kind of what I wouldn't agree with. Um, the coming Messiah. So this, so Israel is the woman. She's pregnant, right? Pregnant with who? Well, the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. So there's this time period of the Messiah coming. Some people think this woman is only Israel. Again, I think it's the Messianic community because if you look in verse 17, if you kind of fall through the book, uh, it speaks of those who follow, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Christ. Those are her offspring. What's that? Well, that that's a believer. So the woman represents, I think, the believe the people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. I think you can get that very clearly. Uh, Ephesians 5 also says the church is the bride, right? So there's some similar language there. The dragon. Who's the dragon? Okay. I'll be honest with you, this is a tough one to figure out. He has seven heads, ten horns on his head. There's seven diadems, so seven like jewels, right? His tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven, so he's a big, burly-looking beast. He stands before the woman to devour this baby. Uh, he fails because the Lord catches him, uh, catches the baby up to his throne. So I would believe that the great red dragon is Satan. Let me show you how he got there as well, then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit more. Verse 9, look at 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil. So I think I'm right. I'm saying it's the devil, right? Because John's giving the answer. So in case you're worried if I'm wrong or right, that one's dead on. Okay? Uh, I cheated that time. Uh, so the seven heads, a lot of times the book of Revelation uses a lot of symbolic language. So seven is typically the number of fullness, right? So you have the seven, seven spirit before God in chapter one. That, that's the Holy Spirit, right? The fullness of the Spirit. You have the seven churches. That means all of Christianity. Right? I think you could argue that. You have the seven plagues, seven seals, you could set seven lamps, and you kind of continue on. There's some language here of, being, of fullness, right? I don't think it's far off to say that since the devil is called the god of this world, he has the fullness of power. Does that make sense? So I think you could, I think it's clear to say those things. He has ten horns, which I think harkens back to some Old Testament language of this beast in Daniel who's this conquering He's just, he's pretty grotesque, he's powerful, right? Seven diadems, king, rules, right? He, he, he's, he's like a mock king.
king represents authority on the earth. Right? So now that we see these two figures, let's take a step back. What, what's this look like? What, what's going on? This is very important. It's a very weird picture of what's going on here. So the coming Messiah is intensely hated by Satan. Friends, Satan hates Jesus. Can we agree on that? He hates the church. He hates this church. He hates Bible. He hates preaching. He hates it. And this picture, if you think about it, is kind of disgusting. Right? So women, if you've ever, if you're a mother, you can birth a child. That enough is just a very painful, literally, situation. It's a very interesting situation. Picture a dragon where the doctor is. Come here. Give me that baby. Right? It's, I mean, it's meant to be gross. It's gross. Like, this is disgusting. This is a grotesque. It's not attractive. It's repulsive. That's the point of, what's, of what John is showing us. It's a sickening thing because the devil is a sick, he's a sick creature. Gross and grotesque, right? He's been opposed to the Lord since Genesis chapter 3. He fell, and we see a continuing rhythm in the Bible. What is Satan constantly doing to the Lord's promise? What's he want to do? He wants to thwart them, correct? He wants to, he wants to unravel them. Uh, you look at Exodus chapter 1, you see Pharaoh seeks to kill all the Hebrew children, right? It's gross. They throw in the river to drown them. It's sick, right? And in the book of Esther, you have Haman who kind of acts kind of like a Hitler. He says, I want all the Jews dead. Kill them all. Wipe them out, right? In Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus is born, what happens in the news, remember? Herod has the same kind of rule, right? Kill the firstborns. Just wipe them all out. I want all these kids killed. And then in Matthew chapter 4, you have Jesus being tempted by the dragon himself, right? So, do you see this pattern in, in the Bible? Yes, it's man going after other men, but it would be foolish to say that Satan has no say in these things. To say that he has no anger, no wrath, no purpose in these things, right? He hates the Lord. He hates the offspring of the woman who will crush his head. So who does the woman give birth to? The question. I think it's clearly the Lord Jesus. Friends, you know, you recognize here, look, at what, look how it speaks of the Lord here. Look at verse 5. The male child will rule all the nations. So the devil is after this child who's going to rule him. Who's going to rule him. That beautiful picture. His anger, wrath, is against the one who's going to be king over him, sit over him. That's why he's angry. Satan's called a godless world because the world's allegiance overall is to the devil, right? But make no mistake. Though the world hates the Lord, hates the gospel, is under the influence of Satan, Jesus Christ reigns supreme. Nothing that goes past his hand. His iron scepter, right? A rod of iron scepter that he can't start to break, right? That's the point. His rule is unbreakable. Jesus Christ is the king. The dragon is nothing under his rule. If you, if you look in the book of Job, friends, we know great destruction, great loss came to Job, a credit to Satan. And do you know why that happened? What did Satan have to do? He had to ask permission. You understand that? 
So this dragon who just, I'm a dragon, you can't stop a dragon, he has to ask for permission to attack. He's not really that great in the eyes of the king. Do you understand? And he healed him. The Lord says, you can take this, but you do not kill him. And guess who Satan doesn't kill? He doesn't kill Job. Because the Lord says, you will not, you cannot. But friends, though, Satan is this beastly dragon. Understanding that Jesus is supreme over him kind of gives you this invincible feeling. I will not go until the Lord says go. My faith won't waver if the Lord has me. He's, he keeps me. He's the king of the nations. Some people like to go to Revelation 17 and link this chapter together and say, it's obviously Rome. Okay, Rome was built on, uh, there's like, they talk about these ten rulers, there's seven hills of Rome. It's obviously Rome. Um, and as you probably know, the Roman government during this time, they weren't a fan of Christianity. Right? They would burn you as a human torch to light their fires. Right? Nero was a sick man. Right? They would throw you to lions for sport. Once you get torn apart, they would tie you to horse ends and rip you apart from horses. Just disgusting, grotesque things. Right? So let's say that this is Rome. It's plausible, right? Let's say this is a type of what Rome's doing. Think of the confidence boosting John's giving you. Yeah, Satan hates it. He really does. So does Nero. The Roman government does. But do you know who Nero has to bow down to one day? He's the king of Nero. Nero's not king. He's mortal. So think of the, the breath of fresh air that John's heroes get. Jesus really is the king. Demons obey Jesus' command. Leprosy evaporates at his word. Storms cease. Lazarus stops being dead when Jesus says, stop being dead. Jesus is the king of everything. Nero is not supreme Jesus. Satan is great. He's horrific in his rebellion, but actually served the king's rule. Look at verse 6. The woman then flees to the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God for 1,260 days. What's that all about? Uh, some people think it's symbolic, referring to Jesus' uh, time before, after the ascension, before he comes back. I think it's dead on. I think it, it's a time of just now. This is the time now. Before he comes back, some people think it has to do with the like, Book of Daniel again. Uh, that's that's fine. It, it, that's, it, that's fine. The main point is this: during this time, what does the wilderness look like? What is the wilderness, right? If you're a first-century Christian, when you hear wilderness, what do you think? What book? Probably Exodus. That's where my heart would go to be Exodus, right? So after they leave this slavery, after they've been rescued, they go into the wilderness. Well, what is the wilderness all about? Well, it's two things primarily. One is testing, correct? The Lord really, he sharpens people. Rather, he bruises them, right? He chastises them for their good. But what does God also do in the wilderness? He provides for them. Manna from heaven. A bunch of birds to eat. Right? Their sandals will never wear out beautiful, beautiful truths that the Lord will take care of his people. He woos them to himself. He entreats them. Stay with me. I, I will take care of you. I'm the Lord. I'm your shepherd. The Greek word here for uh, to rule the nations means shepherd. Friends, in the, in, in the wilderness during this time, the Lord is not just testing you. He's, he's providing for you. 
Have you gone without? Has the Lord not sustained your faith during this time? The Lord really is not just a king, but he's a shepherd. Why has the church remained to this hour? Why has Satan not quenched it? Not because we're strong, but wise, crafty. Because of texts like this, Luke 22, Jesus says that Satan has demanded to have you, to Peter, that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan says, I want Peter. I want him done. He said, and what does Jesus say? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter knows that truth better than a lot of us The church has not fallen. You have not fallen, true believer, because Jesus intercedes for you. Because he rules over your life, too. It, yes, it's a time of testing, but God's grace to you is powerful. He upholds you with his mighty right hand. Despite the hatred of Satan and the anger that he has, only the lover and shepherd of his people, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is powerful and patient, tender and terrific, will sustain you to the end, even through this dragon. Next, we're going to go to this war in heaven. Chapter 7, or I'm sorry, chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. You think the dragon was intense? So go. 7 through 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and the angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been cast down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. But the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So you have this huge war in heaven. Michael and the archangels against Satan and his angels. Can you imagine that sight? That would be a terrifying vision. What would it not be? What would that look like? Well, I mean, they're going to use swords, right? They're angels. What do they use? I don't know. It'd be cool, wouldn't it? Anyway, uh, the dragon's angels are defeated, right? They're cast down to the earth. We hear a voice from heaven. Shouts victory, right? There's then a warning is given. Hey, if you're on the earth, it's coming. It, it, it's about to get real bad. Uh, he pronounces a woe. So here's the big question. I think needs to be answered. When did this war happen? Right? It's pretty important. When did this happen? Is this when Satan fell in the beginning? Right? With Genesis chapter one and two, did he fall then? Did he fall after that was made? When did this happen? Is it another time? Is it, is it later on? Is it during the second coming? I'm giving my best shot. So if you look in the Old Testament again, I'm going back to the book of Job. Uh, how did Satan get to the Lord? Where did he actually go? Y'all remember that story? He was in heaven, wasn't he? He appeared to the Lord and said, how about, how about Job? Pretty cocky down there. Got a good life. Now there's another vision that Zechariah has in chapter 3 of Satan. Again, beside the Lord, accusing the high priest. Weird. So Satan has fallen, right? So he's not, he's not an angel. He's, he's demonic now, right? Demon, right? 
But yeah, he can still go to heaven some strange way, right? So I think what it looks like to me is this is not when he fell the first time. He's already Satan, right? I think it's a different fall. I think it's something different. It looks to me like he's already fallen. This is a different understanding. This is something different. Because if you look at verse 10, what it says, how do they conquer him? With the blood of the Lamb. Jesus didn't die yet when Job was around, technically. Right? I think in, if you look in God's mind, he did, but not on earth. Right? So I don't think this is the original. I, it looks to me like this is something that happened after the cross. It looks like. I take us to me, this is what Jesus would say. John chapter 12, Jesus says this. Now is the judgment, this is before death, this is, this is the last view, this is it's coming. The cross is coming. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So it looks like what he's saying is, when the cross comes, there's going to be this defeat of Satan. We know it's correct, right? He's been disarmed, the Bible says, right? So I think this picture is kind of like now, sports are, sports are this thing that we used to play outside before COVID. Y'all know what I'm talking about sports? Like, you used to just think he's playing, throw balls and stuff. Well, if you ever watch ESPN, they would show the same highlight from different angles, right? Here's camera two. Here's this camera. Here's this fan camera, whatever. I think this chapter is kind of like a different view of what happened after the cross. That's what I would say. I think, I think, that, I think it's helpful. This is what the blood of the Lamb did and had this to look like. Because the accusers thrown down. So I take this to mean that in the Old Testament, Satan could accuse the Lord before about his people. Consider 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 Job, Lord, you know he follows you? Look what he has. Who wouldn't follow you? He's, he's nothing. You think David's a man after your own heart? I like Bathsheba quite a bit. It's pretty pretty faithful of him, don't you think? Oh, Abraham? Yeah. He's a pretty good liar. What a good one he is, Lord. He's caught a good one. See, that's the accusation. But now the cross has come. Now that Jesus has died, men like David, Abraham, and Job, the accusations are gone. So Satan can look at the cross and go, I can't accuse anything now. I mean, he will. But it's different. Does that make sense? It's different. I, that's what it looks like is happening here. Jesus has borne that sin so the accuser can no longer accuse in that way. In the same way, I think it's gone. And my sin, if you're believers, born your sin, it's gone in that same way. He's been cast out in a different way than he first was, so now his realm of operation is not just heaven and earth to accuse. It looks like now it's just the earth. So he can't accuse anymore, because the cross is vanquished, it's, it's been removed. So now Satan's on the earth. Is that helpful? I really hope that it is. I know it's, 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 it's a long strand, but that's what looks like to me. So what's the big picture? We'll, we'll, let's take a step back and look. The defeat the, the of Satan was a big triumph, right? He's this ancient servant, deceiver of the whole world. It's language of like Genesis chapter 3 where we hear this, this ancient snake who deceives the woman, deceives Adam. Kind of reminds us also of the promise that oh, that head crusher is coming. He's going to crush that snake, right? This rule is going to kill him. Why is that? It's because Hebrews chapter 6 says some of the most, if there's ever a tattoo I would get, which I might, I, 
back and forth, but anyway, irrelevant. If there ever a tattoo I would get, it would be Hebrews 6.18, this little phrase where it says, it is impossible for God to lie. Oh, take it to the bank. You could live your whole life on just that one verse. It's impossible. And this shows that because Satan is defeated. The Lord said, no, there's going to be an offspring of the woman going to come and he's going to crush. He's going to dismantle the defeat. What happened? The Lord did not lie. Jesus came, the cross actually happened, right? Phase one of defeating Satan. Verse 10, Satan's called the accuser. He accuses believers before God day and night. So Jesus' death has removed the penalty for my sin, which means that God's justice has been shown. His glory is vindicated. Satan cannot say, you think you're so just? How about Job? What did David do? Are you punishing him? Right? That's an accusation, right? Against God's justice, correct? And he has grounds to say, because it looks like God's being unjust, is it not? I mean, look at you. Y'all know David is, right? He's, that was bad what he did. He killed a guy's, a woman's husband because he slept with a girl. Like, I, I mean, I lie. I'm killing anybody, though. I'll slay some woman's husband, right? So, what did the cross do? If you have your Bible, flip real quick to Romans chapter 3. I want to read some real quickly for you. Romans chapter 3, 23 to 26. I'm basically just going to read it because I ain't got to preach that text. So that text is, you can just read it and you'll be well acquainted. But this is what the cross did. I want to hope you understand why I think, again, this view is correct about what the cross did and why he's cast down. Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all sinned, like you, me, David, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, so God put Christ forward, as a propitiation, so to absorb the penalty, to absorb the wrath, by his blood, to be received by faith. Why? Why would you do that? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, so in being patient, he looked, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And the justifier, the one whose faith in Jesus. Do you, you get what it's saying there? When David sinned, when the Old Testament people sinned, the Lord would say, the cross is coming. Right? It's like, they're, they're, they're looking forward to what's going to happen. So Satan could accuse. It makes sense. Right? Now the cross has come. God looks as he really is, which is just. I did punish that sin. What can he accuse him? Or do you see that? That's. I think that's the point. That's what. That's why we knew he fell. The cross of Christ was for God's glory. It was primarily to show God's righteousness, to show that he is righteous, that he does justify sinners. Ephesians 1 says that God desired to display the glorious grace that he has. Ephesians 2 says the riches of his mercy... The cross was about demonstrating the glory of God and righteousness by saving sinners who deserve nothing but just accusations. If you've, been a, if you've been accused of sinning before the cross, you know what? That is dead accurate. You did do those things. You do deserve wrath. You really do. But the heavenly courtroom has been, the accuser's gone. I used to work at a courthouse. I know what attorneys do. It's gone. They can't, there's, the file's empty. Well, the judge... 
I guess I don't have a case anymore. No, you don't. So friends, in the court of God's justice, when you stand before me, think even now today, your sins are gone. You have a redeemer, a propitiation for your sins. You have an advocate. The Lord is your righteousness. Do you see the beauty of this? Look at verse 10. It says again, the authority of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 2 is one of my favorite stories where the paralytic is lowered down to the ceiling, right? They rip open the ceiling and they, they uh, bring down this guy who can't walk, right? And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. That's a weird t- statement, isn't it? So let's say Matt calls me stupid. Well, I can forgive Matt. Matt, that was mean. I'm, I forgive you. That's okay. So what if Matt called me, you know, something dumb like that, something mean, and then you walk in and go, I forgive you both. Okay? Nothing, nothing to do with you. Isn't that weird? Why would you do that? Well, it doesn't make any sense. Jesus can look at a person and say, I forgive you. I don't know why. Because he's God. Every sin is against him. So he has the authority to say, You're forgiven. Friends, your sins are forgiven. He has the authority to remove them because he bore it on his body. So how do we conquer Satan? How did this first conquering happen? I want to break it down real quickly here. Verse 11. Blood of the Lamb, word of the testimony, loving not your lot to the end. The blood of the Lamb. It's a common, unfortunately, evangelical misunderstanding to believe that Satan has the power to send you to hell. You know that? A lot of people think that. Satan's going to get you. Send you to hell. That he has the power to do that. It's almost it's like there's a cosmic, uh, dumb illustration, it's almost like a cosmic hungry, hungry hippo mass, right? God trying to get all that he can, Satan trying to get like, oh, who's going to win? He might, Satan might get you, Lord might get you, we don't know, it's a close one. Satan will send you to hell. That's indeed a misunderstanding because Satan has no power to damn anybody. What can he do? He can only appeal to God's justice, right? He can only accuse and say, look what you've done. That does deserve. So how do you know that you deserve hell? Well, you look at the law. What's the law? God's standard. Have you ever told a lie before? Yes, you'd be a liar. Have you ever stolen? Cheated on a test? Downloaded music from LimeWire back in middle school? Yep, did that before too. Y'all, y'all learned LimeWire? No, didn't it? Look with lust, adultery of the heart. You, you through all ten commands. You don't, love, you don't love the Lord by your heart all the time. I don't either. You don't love your neighbor yourself. No, you don't. I don't either. So you, you know you're guilty. You look at the law, you know you've sinned. You know you need a, a forgive. You know these things. And Satan can say, you have done it. I've seen it. You know it. Everyone's done it. It's your nature, right? Only he can point his finger and accuse. He can harass. He can yell. But only God can determine in the end, right? At the cross, what God does, he determines Jesus' perfect life, when he never did those things, is credited to your account. So when the Lord sees your life in Christ, it looks like, God, this is so important to catch this, not that you've not sinned. It looks like you've always obeyed. Isn't that better? It's not just, oh, killed never sin. Okay, but I have to, I have to ace the class. I can't just not take the class. I've got to ace it, right? In the Lord's courtroom, it looks like you've always obeyed. Because in Christ, the Lord Jesus is your righteousness. Do you understand that? So when you're accused... You just rip. You're righteous 
in the eyes of the judge. Do you understand that? Is that not magnificent? Colossians chapter 2 says that Jesus nailed the law you broke the cross by his blood, made you alive, and by doing so, accusing disarmed the rulers and authorities. Satan's been disarmed if you're a Christian. Right? People describe it as the snake who has no teeth. He just, he's just gummy. He can't bite you. Death anymore. He can't bite you. He's gummy. No teeth. He's not threatening anymore. Right? He's been disarmed. His weapon's gone. Is that not huge? The judge is satisfied. Jesus' obedience is yours through faith. And if, if you don't know that truth, if you don't sit in the righteousness of Christ, please talk to an abstractor today. Come to Christ, be counter righteous by His works. That's the gospel. The word of their testimony. That's another word for just saying the gospel, right? It's the word. So, what what do they testify to? It's not how they walk out on their 12, prayer, prayer, or whatever. That's not their testimony, right? The word of their testimony to, tes- to testifying is the gospel, right? <clears throat> so, friends, here's a question How do you overcome numerous assaults in the Christian life? Do you ever have doubts in your life? Do you ever go through time of doubt in your life? Yeah, been there. Season of downtroddenness where you feel like, you know, I'm not a Christian. I'm not working really good. I'm just resting today. It's helpful sometimes to look at your fruit, right? Jesus says, you know, a tree by its fruit. You like to eat fruit, right? Y'all get that? Right. So you, you can notice an apple tree by the apple bears, right? And I think it's helpful to look at your fruit if you're not trust the Lord and you're not praying and reading the Bible, help, in a sense. But just to do that can be very, very hard because you don't always do the things you ought to do because you're a sinner. Right? So Satan would say, look at your works. I've seen better works than that. It's pretty weak. You would say, uh, it is pretty weak. You obey? Sin four times yesterday. You know that? I guess that I did. Maybe my works aren't really that great. I want to treat you to what John Newton would say. This is what he wrote in a letter. You say you find it hard to believe incompatible with divine purity to embrace such a monster as yourself. You express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is correct, but too low an opinion of the person and work and promises of the Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. You got what John Newton's saying there? When you look at yourself and you go, man, I'm bad. John's saying, yeah, you are. Good. But your opinion of Christ is, you can't save a low person like me. That's a horrible view of, of the gospel. Jesus saves to the uttermost. He's omnipotent. He's God. That's a low view of Christ. John's saying, no, no, no. Correct view of self, but make Christ high because he is high. That's the word of the testament. Not loving your life until the end has to do with dying to yourself. Christians are those who look to self and say, no, I want to live as Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain. My sins have been forgiven. How could I not deny myself to death? How could I give in to sin? I want to love the Lord. That's the point. And the, the series work against to remind you, sow your wild oats, man. Do what you want. Eat, drink, be merry. Who gives a rip what happens? For tomorrow we die. The Lord would say, deny yourself. Die as gain. Friends, to use the Old Testament picture of Jacob and Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. We think that's just so stupid, which, by the way, dumb. 
when we sin, we sell, quote-unquote, our birthright for soup. It's not worth it. Does this sin look really good for about like a half a second? So live, love your lives not to death. Don't give in to sin. Hate your, hate your sin. Hate your flesh. Satan was, I'm sorry, Stephen was stoned to death because he endured by seeing Christ. The apostles were martyred because they looked to Jesus. The Christian life is about dying to self and looking up. It's low self, look up. That's the gospel. That's, that's how we endure. 12 through 17, we see this picture ending. I promise the last one will be quicker. Woe, O oh, earth, so Satan's thrown down. He has great wrath because, quote, if you look, his time is short. Terrifying verse, and in verse 12, so Satan's mad, ticked. If I can't give him heaven, I can give him on earth. I'm done. You think you won? I'm going to kill him on earth then. Great wrath, his time is short. He's going to go against the church. Verse 13, each he's pursued. The one pursued to the wilderness. She's given two wings of the great eagle. So now she can fly. Very talented woman. Pregnant. Birth. Flying. Dragon chaser, right? Uh, looks like Old Testament language of Exodus. The Lord says in Exodus, I gave you wings of an eagle to fly out of there, right? So the Lord caring for her, providing for her. See this weird picture in verses 15 and 16 of this river flying out of his mouth. Like, what the heck's going on there? Uh, he's not throwing up. He's trying to sweep away the woman, right? So Satan's attempt to, again, destroy the church. If you look, the earth opens up its mouth, quote-unquote mouth, and swallows the river. But what, what's the point of that? Satan can't get it right. He just can't. He can't conquer the church. He can't. The Lord just says, no, I'm going to take care of that one too. So the point of this text, the point of this portion here, is he is extremely angry. Look at verse 17. It says he goes off to do what? To make war. That is not very kind language. Satan is angry. I cannot emphasize that enough. He is. You know this time's coming short, and I'm going down, getting gunned down. If I'm going, I'm going down hard. That's the point, right? I would say it's the final countdown, but y'all, we just made a comment a while ago. That'd be a dumb joke. His time's been cut short. He's angry. He's going to employ everything that he has. And that's chapter 13, which we're going to burn through here. Chapter 13, the worship on earth. Like the last chapter, there's two pictures we've got to dissect here. Look at verse 1 through 7. There's this beast rising out of the sea, has horns, seven heads, blasphemous names, looks like a leopard, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion. The dragon gives his power to it, has great authority, it suffers a mortal wound in verse 3. Verse 4, the people worship the dragon. So that's bad, right? And they say to the beast, who is like the beast? Oh, man, what a great monstrous creature this thing is, right? The worship of this beast. Verse 5, the beast is given a mouth to say blasphemous things. Verse 6, it blasphemes God and his people. Verse 7, it's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That means kill, by the way. Verse 8, some will not worship the beast, however. We're going to get that in a second. So who is this beast, right? Uh, it rises out of the sea. If you notice that, verse 1, a lot of times in Jewish writings, there's this Symbolism of the, if you think of, what's that? There's a, a I'm pretty sure in ACDC song, they ripped the words saying, there is no rest for the wicked. Is that, is that ACDC? Who is that? Who sings that? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Anyway, duh. Do what? Oh, whatever. It's just some dumb song. They ripped this verse of Isaiah that says, 
There you go, that's who it is. Iron Maiden, center. Uh, it's this, uh, they ripped up the line out and said there's no rest for the wicked, right? And it's from Isaiah 50, or I'm sorry, 47, I believe. 57, and the point is the wicked are like a tossing sea, right? They're just always doing evil, just evil after evil. Just like picture the ocean just keeps coming, right? It's deep, keeps coming. Just all this mud and grossness in the ocean. I mean, people pee in the ocean right now. Anyway, uh, it's gross. So this beast rises out of this evil, right? Which I think is why Revelation 21 says, in the new creation, the sea has passed away. Evil's gone. That's the picture, right? It's not a literal sea, but the evil, right? Uh, he has all these heads and diadems. He's terrifying. Some people think uh, it's a combination of Daniel 7 again with, like, these nations and Sure, it's possible. I think it's more of just the totality of his power. He just needs a great, powerful beast. Massive, terrifying, rules, crushes, right? Anything that's set up against the church, against Jesus, is a type of this beast. You understand that? Anything that hates the Lord, to kick out the gospel, and say, well, let's just change this. Let's get this out of here. That's aggressive against the church. That is the beast. Right, that's the headship of the dragon. The dragon rules this beast, right? Looks like this beast, if you look in verse 3, suffers a mortal wound. And what's the earth do? Whoa. Strong. So they marvel, right? Some people think it's the, the Lord wounding the beast, right? It's the same language used as the plague. Some people think that. Granted, it's probably true. Some people think the beast was Nero, because when Nero died, he was in, he was this disgusting Roman ruler, like we mentioned a while ago. Uh, when he killed himself, he committed suicide. People had this rumor that he was going to rise from the dead again. They were freaking out. Come back to the wall. People were scared that he was going to rise again and wreak havoc, right? Some people think it's that. Others just say, they don't know what the heck it is. Um, the importance is this. What, is, what does it look like? Look at verse 4. They worship the dragon because he gave authority to this monster. So you worship Satan through another being who he gave his authority to. What does that look like? It looks like Jesus, doesn't it? So the Lord gave his power, quote-unquote, he gave, worship the Lord, worship Jesus, right? I'll send you, they worship you to get to me. Does that make sense? What that looks like a little bit? Isn't that weird? So the point is, Animosity against the Lord, it's gonna look, it's gonna look similar. It's gonna be against the Lord, but it's gonna claim deity. You obey, you don't, you don't question, you submit to what we say, right? And they say, who is like the beast? Guys, that is blasphemy. Who's like the beast? Who's like the Lord? That's the only thing you can be saying that to. Verse 5 through 7, it says he speaks haunting, so prideful things. He's allowed to make war on the saints to kill them. And this beast, this beast claims deity, blasphemes people, blasphemes the Lord, conquers Christians. It's a terrifying thing. It makes war, it says. What's the big picture look like? Satan may attack the church like a roaring lion. Can we agree with that? He says in 1 Peter that he's a roaring lion, right? So Satan's attempts against the church will be very, very blunt. Like the Roman Catholic Church in the 15th century, like Queen Bloody Mary, she literally just killed Christians like it was a sport, right? It may, it may look like that. It may look like ISIS in the 21st century that beheaded Christians back when I would call it. They filmed and put online, people see. They put them in a cage and burned them alive and filmed and put on YouTube. Y'all know that? It's gross. 
It may look like North Korea. It may look like the Nigerian herdsmen that just slaughter Christians, pillage, rape the women, and get the heck out of there. And do it day after day after day. It may look like that. But as Matt said last week, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Why? Look at verse 7. It was allowed. It was a given authority. God does not, not, God does not, not ordain anything. This is purposeful. Satan's not going and God's not kind of like, oh my, what are we going to do? The gospel spreads far when people are slaughtered. I don't know how it does that. It does. There's divine wisdom in the Lord saying, you can get them. But you will not crush the gospel. Wisdom. God has not been quenched because Satan, though he is over the earth, the Lord's over the universe, even this beast has get permission of the Lord to do anything. The deceiver of the whole world will say, Worship the beast. I can't escape this. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were told, You worship that idol. And they got thrown in the fire, guys. The Lord saved them. He may not save us. He may not spare you, but he will spare the gospel. He will preserve the church. That's the power of this beast. It's this global authority, it's this anger, this hatred. Verse 8 speaks of, again, the Lord's sustaining power. God has planned your salvation. We call this the doctrine of election. Verse 8, all those who dwell on the earth, will not worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If you're a Christian, it's because the Lord has loved you before the foundation of the world. He says, horrifying, we just sing it, guys. You will not worship this beast. You will not give in. You won't wander in your faith. You'll stay. But keep you. Just like a woman in wilderness sustained, the Lord will keep you even in trial. Do you understand that? Isn't that great news? When horrors come against the church and the Christian life, He will keep you because you're His. You're secure. Jesus says, don't fear Him who can only kill the what? The body. Don't fear Him. What's He going to do? Kill you? Fear the Lord. We can only kill body and soul and cast them out. That's, that's the, the point. Is fear the Lord, not this monstrous Attacking the church. Verse 9 and 10 says, look, look, look at verse 9 and 10. This is in the Bible, by the way. It's nuts. Verse 9 and 10. If you have a year, listen. If you're taken to captivity, to captivity you go. If you're slain with a sword, with a sword you will be slain. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Friends, you might get killed. 20 years from now, yeah, that's a Christian. I don't know. You might. You might go for season to Paul and get killed. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. Christians die every single day. It's the bloodiest century. You know that? Christians, you know, it's absolutely crazy, and the gospel is just spread like wildfire. You probably won't die in America as a Christian, probably, probably, for for being a Christian, probably. Won't. So what do you do? You endure, right? The doctrine of election is not I'm a Christian, do what I want. You endure because of election. Do you understand that? If God's chosen you, then I can walk and and go right to this beast and walk right through it. That's the point. Jesus is better. Your, if, your land, if your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, you will endure. Therefore, endure. That's the charge. Last portion here. A second beast rises up. If you look, it has two horns like a lamb, sounds like a dragon. 
power of the first beast. This one's intense. Look at this. Verse 13. Performs great signs. Makes fire fall down. Deceives people. Kills people. It rises out of the earth, so it's more of a not the sea where it's wild and crazy. It's kind of just calm. But it's the earth. I, I like the earth. It's stable. I, I walk on the ground. Unless you're in California, it's not very stable at all. Earthquakes. Yeah, I gotcha. Kind of. So. Uh, all territory, right? So earth and sea, right? Two horns like a lamb, sounds like a dragon. So he looks like a dragon. He's gentle. You, almost. He sounds like Satan. What does that sound like? What does it look like? Looks like false teaching, doesn't it? False teaching not look good, sound good, feel good. Y'all know what my kingdom's died, so there's that. Y'all know what the Mormons believe? Real close gospel, isn't it? Real close. Not, though. You ever met a mean Mormon before? I think they're very kind. Deceived, guys. Right? Heresy of the early church had come in like crazy. It looks so stinking close. Gospel. It's words plus Christ on gospel. Here's the point. Deception will come either bluntly, like a lion, or like an angel of light. It will look really attractive. You can only endure, check this out, those who will not worship the beast. Again, there are, God just keeps his church, you understand this point, this whole sermon. He's keeping you. He will keep you. Endure. Hold fast. God has loved you. He will love you. The shepherd will keep you. These are the nations. As we close here, here's a question. Look at verse 16 through 18. This is the part where people are always kind of freaking out all the time about the Bible, right? The mark of the beast. You guys see that? 666, mark of the beast. Some people think uh, it's like, it's a uh, Nero. If you like put Emperor Nero, translate it back to Hebrew, put it with the numbering system in 666. Oh, it's Nero. Turns out you can do that, make it Hitler. You can make it the Pope. You can make it President Trump, evidently, I read somewhere. So he might be the beast. I don't know, probably not. not. Uh, if you if you do a big purple dinosaur, it works out too. The Barney, y'all y'all know that? I, I read that in commentary. It's pretty pretty clever. J, G K Beale said that. So you can you can make it fit any paradigm you want, and that's wrong. That's not correct. That's not what the text is for. The text is for there's a mark. There's a symbolic following. It looks like something to follow Satan and to follow Christ. What's it look like to follow Satan? You rebel. You hate the church. You might be really slick. But the mark of the beast is symbolic in the sense that there's this rebellion. You follow the ways of the world and Satan. Friends, if you're a Christian today, I want you to know the Lord will keep you. You're called to endure. He will sustain you with his righteous right hand. But you have to endure. And don't worry, because the Lamb's book of life has been written. If you're, if you're a believer today, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. False teaching, fear of literally dying in America because of a ruler or a president that might get elected or a nation. You don't have anything to fear. Martin Luther said, A mighty fortress is our guard, a bulwark never failing. You know that? Though this world with devils filled shall threaten to undo us, the truth 
shall triumph through us. God will keep you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a mighty shepherd of our souls. That you keep us to the end, despite fear, despite anger, despite sin. Lord, you are the king of the nation. Thank you that you keep your church. God, help us to be faithful. Thank you for a light in the world like a redeemer. God, we are so thankful that you are upholding and growing your people spiritually and numerically. God, help us to endure, help us to embrace Christ, to look to Christ in suffering, to look to him in joy. God, help us to know that you are governing the nations. That they are but a drop in the bucket. We love you. Thank you for the cross. In your name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.